Criminal Magic, Chapter 16. Wednesday, 2004, GMT-8. These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die, like fire and powder which, as they kiss, consume. Hedda, Pillhead John and Kali, watch the remaining few minutes of the video, getting more images of laboratories and forests, mostly, and an awful lot of blurry mess that could be just about anything. When they get to the end of the video stream, Kali saves the file and then sits back quietly for a moment, seeming to try to make sense of something. So, Pillhead John says, you want to tell us exactly what it was you saw that got you so worked up there? Kali nods his head. Look, he says, you both know that I was involved in the collective movement early on, back before I got here in Newtown. Yes, says Dr. Jean Lee. You have attended the inaugural conference, did you not? Yeah, Kali says, waving one hand dismissively. See, I had a friend back then, and we sort of got into it all together. But then my interest started to move toward the genuine philanthropic article instead of the actions for action's sake Rambo crap that so many of the collectives get into. I mean, I know there's some really good work being done there and all, but for the most part, he looks over at the two of them. Suffice it to say that my friend and I wound up not seeing eye to eye on the subject. And we didn't exactly part on amicable terms. In fact, if you ask me now, I'll tell you that guy's a serious grade-A prick. Total lone wolf as well, which makes his life in the collective a bit ironic. Okay, Pill says. So Dana happens to have seen this ex-friend of yours in Portland. Big deal. We don't even know when that memory was formed. See, that's the thing, Collie responds. About a week ago, out of the blue, who calls me up in the middle of the fucking night with a desperate need for a little electronic intel? He points at the screen. You guessed it, that guy. And I happen to know, since he was dumb enough to let on, that he was calling in some additional help on a corporate kidnap gone wrong. The target was none other than Harrison Lynn. Pill lets out a low whistle. Whew. Whoa. You talking about the same Lynn that just got dead recently? The Petro exec? The very same, Collie says. From what I guessed at the time, the collective blew the snap and he was trying to salvage the payment, getting back in touch with the coordinator. This part I know for sure since she found me recently while looking for him. See, he's notoriously hard to get in touch with and apparently his life was in some jeopardy. Well, no shit, Phil says. Pardon my French, Dr. Jean Lee, but why the fuck haven't you mentioned any of this to us before? You think your buddy slabbed Lynn? Collie shakes his head slowly from side to side. On that point, no. Maybe a lot of things, but I don't believe he's gone so far that he'd kill for money. Not to say folks couldn't occasionally get dead as fallout in his line of work, but I honestly thought the whole thing didn't involve Newtown whatsoever. I gave Coordinator the information she needed and never saw or heard from her again. Now we get Miss Memory Loss in here and it looks like she's got some connection. So... Do you think that someone tried to kill Dana in connection with the kidnap? Dr. Jean-Lee asks. It really was part of the collective. Then coordinator told me as much, Kali answers, which is, as you know, very unusual, almost unheard of. But the lab experience, the tree sits, Kali shakes his head. I just don't get where it all fits exactly. 
I think it's about time you maybe reconnect with your prick friend of yours, Pill says with a grin, because I'm suspicious that he might have a hell of a story to tell. Well, Kali says, I'm mind coordinator, Satsal number one, so I suppose I can probably get at it again, huh? As you know, Dr. Jean Lee says, I do not normally condone data intrusions, but I think this may be an instance in which it would be wise to merit an exception. Mother knows best, Pill says. Mother sure as hell knows best. Wednesday, 2005, GMT minus 5. The screen door to the enclosed dining hall veranda swings wide, and as Wraith is stepping out, Luz glides past him into the room. Hello, she says. Sounds of forest awakening churn the early evening air. Since childhood, she's been fascinated by the amount, the sheer volume of the sound insects generate. But with all that jungle song, all the swelling cadence and hum of uncountable voices, she has never looked as she might been able to find the source of a single note, not even so much as a cicada in full throat. For Luz, each nighttime insect symphony provides proof of the unending wonders of the natural world. Hey there, where have you been, answer asks. I was walking with Don Ramon, seeing the sights. I am sorry I missed the dinner. If you're hungry, you better tell the folks in the kitchen, coordinator says. They already picked up the dishes. Oh, I am all right, Lou smiles. I don't have much hunger now. Best watch your weight there, senorita. Rene says, sprawled out in his chair. Little as you are, one of these big old birds out there could just scoop you right up. So, Luz, answer swings around from his place at the table and fixes his friend with a wide stare. Find anything interesting out there? He raises his eyebrows as if to say, come on, give. What do you have for your old pal? Nothing, Luz lies with the ease of drawing breath. She reflects the expression her friend has used. At the same time, she extends an image of the dreaming place out through the palm of her hand, sending it toward Answer's chest as she appears to flick a fly away from her shoulder. Answer feels a catch in his throat as a transparency showing the meadow and its ethereal inhabitants appears inside his head. A bloody face, a towering man encircled by fire. A worshiper? Melting? Turning into a crocodile? Wisps of other figures, other elements of something, and from a distance, an aerial view capturing Luz and the old man, Ramon, standing at the edge of the great, grassy opening, looking skyward. Do you see it? Luz's voice appears inside Answer's head. He looks at the Shaw woman, standing quietly next to him, her bare feet planted on the rose-colored floor planks. Yes, he thinks. My dream, my dream, man in my dream. She turns her head away and begins to walk toward one of the chairs strewn around the room. Answer has to spread his legs slightly to keep his balance. You there, too. How? Other, other watching, Luz thinks, and the meaning is tinged with fear. The sense of image, understanding, experience runs along the pipe between them, leaving Answer certain that she means that the image of she and Ramon from some point above and behind them did not originate with her. And if someone was watching them there, holy fucking shit. You all right, Answer? Food agree with you? Jack North is speaking. Answer can see his mouth moving, tries to switch quickly back from the disturbing images Luz has just streamed his way. 
Bugs? Jack repeats, something out of whack with the grub? No, ah, uh, no, just a little, don't know, queasy for a sec, thanks. Maybe I could use some water, answer Pat's the stomach. You were green as a leaf, man, Jack shakes his head in relief as he hands Anne's for a glass of water from the table. Looked like you were going to tip right over. Sure you're all right? I'd hate to have to tell the cooks they'd kill one of our most important visitors. Yeah, Renee laughs. That'd be a real fucking bummer. Say, Jose, you knacked one of the guests. Gotta cut back on the butter, man. By the time he arrives back at his cottage, Rafe's head throbs. Another headache. Had to excuse myself. Had to get away from those people, lie down and rest. If it weren't for this, this pain blinds him. Headache. I'd have stayed and spun those vacuous intellectual lackwits like tops. He blunders into the bathroom and feels around under the sink for the bottle of painkillers he stashed there. My God, never had a headache in my life until four years ago. Leaning over the sink, he feels a wave of nausea so intense he finds himself dry heaving into the porcelain bowl. This is only the latest in a steadily increasing flow of incredibly powerful headaches. At first, he thought they were an aberration, something easily ascribed to environmental factors, but tests for a wide array of allergens left him relatively sure there was no external organic cause for the sudden arrival of these dementia-causing attacks. Perhaps it's adult migraine onset or diabetes, but the results were negative for those causes as well as a host of other organic possibilities. Using every test he could imagine, Rafe was finally baffled. Here I am again, reaching for the approximine just to maintain my sanity, he thinks. After considerable experimentation, he's found that one grain of the synthetic opiate was sufficient to knock down the worst of his pain symptoms. But approximine was no cure for the real problem. The real problem was the dream. A singularly frightening, indescribably gruesome dream was by far the worst product the headaches produced. Next to them, Rafe had prayed for the luxury of being able to exchange any amount of physical suffering for a release from the recurrence of that dream. But no survivable quantity of chemical detergent nor any spiritual plea appeared capable of scrubbing the stain of this one nightmare from the tissue of his brain. Rafe had devoted his undiluted attention to the problem. There were days when even the priority item, the longevity project, was abandoned in a frenzy of experimentation whose sole goal was to find the source of the dream and stop it. And now, after a thorough analysis of all the elements, using a graphic chart to collate his data, it was clear that the earliest appearance of the pains in his head coincided exactly with the initial onset of the horrifying dream. Even in drug-induced hazes, Rafe had the awful realization that if the headache miraculously ceased coming today and the dream never occurred again, he would still never be able to go a single night without waking, wreathed in a corona of cold fear and certainty that the dream had simply escaped the confines of his head and stepped into his life where it could consume him. The dream was simple and stark. He was on a field, pulling forward low to the ground. He could hear the sounds of his own struggle, the grunting drain of effort that he felt as he heaved with all his might to draw a steel plow through dark, stinking soil. He was in harness, and the straps binding his shoulders and waist were made of, what was it, string? No, something far more gossamer, like spiderweb, a material so absurdly light it couldn't possibly take the strain 
of his sweating efforts, but it did. And in his dream, he wondered how he had come to be performing the task of a slave, a man bound to his burden with no say at all in the matter. A memory showed him kneeling in a garden, glorying in the joy of choice. This plant here, this flower there, but somehow he had become a prisoner of his passions. The joy that had animated his life mutated into crippling labor. And in whose service? The question repeatedly invaded his head. Whose service? Rafe leans on the white oval of the sink and looks at himself in the mirror. As he watches each element of his visage, the strong, certain rise of cheekbones, the sharp hooked nose, and the glittering blue eyes all begin inexorably to fade. Before he can resolve his mind to accept what he's seeing, every facet of the familiar face reflected before him softens into a series of evaporated pixels. He stands staring at a mirror, empty now of any image except a towel rack with his dirty wash rag and tattered yellow towel on the wall behind him. His hands clutch at the cold porcelain sink rim. He feels suddenly unable to breathe. Where? The recollection of an old vampire film skitters across his mind. Then, after only a few heart-pounding seconds, a familiar image begins to resolve itself on the silvered glass. Back comes the clear line of jaw, the cut of deep brow and sweep of wild eyebrows. Each of the features emerges from the mirror with a magical certainty of a photograph's details freshly drawn from development. Finally, in a matter of moments, the familiar face is back, but as he looks, Ray's skin rises in goosebumps and a cold sweat drains down his back. The face staring back at him, although perfectly like his in every detail, belongs to someone else. Now, in his limbic brain, far back in the primal shroud of pre-human being that is yet so large a part of mankind, Rafe Kohler shrinks in fear. A terrifying awareness that something is happening penetrates even the thick buffer of his aproximine-induced sleep. Lying, fully dressed face down on the narrow daybed, his body bucks and trembles like a rag doll in the hands of an impatient child. A plaintive mewling escapes his tightly compressed lips. The terrible dream, deep in the ancient shadows of Rafe, his savage mind scours the cave place, finds a wooden stob daubed with flaming fat. His survival self drags him to the mouth of the hiding place, sets him to twirling the faggot, jabbing it at the massive thread of empty black that is the outside world. Keep away! Stay out! But the dream smothers this antique defense with ease. Coming, something awful is coming for him. And the modern man lies writhing on his bed, shivering and sweating as his timeless self struggles against a surging resignation that there is no escaping whatever is approaching. Wednesday, 2237 GMT. Coordinator stands alone in the darkness, waiting for her eyes to adjust to the slightly crimson gloom of the small space. This is the first time she's used this pair of readers, and the image-enhancing retinal screens are causing a slight weep in her left eye, probably the drag of slight imbalance of a bigger receiver lead, and then is the oddly hued yellow cast of the stationary object that is slightly unsettling. Other than that, they're as cornea-friendly as any pair of over-the-counter contact lenses would be. 
and she loves the way she can redirect files, change screens, shift programs simply by focusing her attention. The old order was a pain in the ass, but with always having to put something on, shift your focus to cue the system, all that. Coordinator murmurs to herself to set the default for the microphone screen print. A thorax sensing impulse readware allows you to talk with your mouth closed and direct the computer with near silence too. Two years ago, when I tried this shit, it was like listening to someone talking through a sock in the next room, coordinator thinks. Couldn't make out a word in 10, but this new setup is trick. Seems like they can get me word perfect every time. Ovi, have you got me linked yet? The scratchy voice over the readware and uplink. Your retinal scan and voiceover are online. Proceed as you like. From here on, I'm guessing it'll be mostly plug to play. If you have any questions, you'll be there, right? I am at your service for the duration, Obi says. You are not alone. She turns to really take in the room. Jack North gave her directions so she knows that this is Rafe's office. Every flat surface is gorged with piles and reams of paper, wastebaskets overflowing onto the floor. God, the guy is a complete pig, he thinks. Let's hope his machines are better organized than this or I'll never find shit. Fucking scientists. The security up until this point was laughable. One infrared zone guard, a light red pad, pressure detector, and a few badly rigged sound and motion backups. Gotta love these provincials. But she supposes it's only to be expected after all. How many data thieves are you thinking are going to run onto you out here? She begins a systematic sweep of the room. There are several terminals, but you can see they're all linked to a single stack. Despite the pigsty effect, there is some order after all. She bends to attach a series of wires to the surface of the drive boxes. All the lines flow back to a six centimeter square sequencer clipped to her waist. It's meant to devise a security workaround for any code guardian wear affixed to the physical plane of the computer. She takes a pocket transceiver connecting her retinal interface to the box as a means of assuring no connecting point will be forgotten in a moment of haste. Using your thoughts to control a machine-connected interface device is set up as a vulnerability. Any hasty disconnect, you could have real physical side effects. The idea makes her wince. An all-clear blinks in the lower right corner of her heads-up panel. Cool. She pulls up a chair in front of the nearest screen and lights up the system. Okay, let's go to it, she says, wordlessly into the throat mic. She pops into the interface connector between house and the local system, and the house mainframe immediately begins bombarding the on-site box with ECM. 30 seconds later, she still hasn't got access. Ovi, what's up? Many key pairs in sequence, he says. More interesting than expected, but the ECM is cracking. Just a moment. Coordinator hears what sounds like a faint tapping over the connection. You're in, Ovi says. Where would you like to begin? Accounting, she says. System-wide accounting. If there's a weak spot here, anything that makes some off-the-books cash, this is where we'll find it. After all, the man's a science geek, not an accountant. The screens before her eyes flicker suddenly awash in unending data deluge. This could take some time. Ovi, she says with her mouth closed, could we get something else up on the screen right now? Like, I don't know, like... As I recall, your file indicates you have some enthusiasm for card games. Perhaps a little gin. The intrusion rolls on. Wednesday, 2300 GMT. The long bones are coming down. They snake ever lower on the mountain face. 
stepping over jagged rock hidden beneath downy coverlets of moss, sliding with the certainty of bats through the dense wall of jungle dark. They fall onto the footstep hills in the distance from the Matiwa Puchkau, house of the sacred lake, whose rarefied atmosphere and distance have for eons provided the safety of invisibility. The old ones, reincarnated in the form of today's seekers, are descending, going to the lowlands to touch what must be felt for things to remain as they have been since memory beyond words. It is time for this. That is why they step quickly, each footfall animated by an urgent sense of purpose. Each of them is armed. Although magic is power, it alone may not be enough to kill, and tonight's killing is their work. This work must be done quietly, swiftly, and with a free flow of blood. Once, long ago, what they are about to do would have been easy. They'd have fallen on their enemies in overwhelming numbers and annihilated them. But things have come undone. Today, there are not enough of them to bring unequivocal destruction to their enemies. The Amati is disappearing, and today the Uwa guard their young like never before. They have been awakened in the coming of the shade. Besides, no amount of Amati can make a being immortal. 300, 400 years of life, yes, there is that, but each member of the clan comes to their day. Death by exhaustion, accident and murder are all death just the same and the long bones are not immune to that dark hand. That is why there is the plan. Salvation, growth of the line, lies within the plan. And to keep the plan from unraveling, they must cull the intruder enemy. Somos criaturas de la selva, caimanes sangre a hueso. We are creatures of the jungle, caiman, blood to bone. This, they know, is the single truth of things. There is not... Much time, so few of us, and the machines are destroying this place. Enough. Slipping through the darkened forest, their single mind moves out onto the bottom ground where the night reeks of all that is not like them, and living things trail the ghosts of past lives like tales. All that moves here, all that belongs to this lower place, those that breathe and eat of it are afraid of what they do not, cannot know. They are right to fear the proximity of the long bones. This is as it used to be. All weak things, those that walk with the short tail, beings that cannot live with the rock snake of water, they should be afraid. Ours is the ordered mind, the single mind. Ours is a walk outside of time. These are the words that lie within the ululations working their way up from the throats of the long bone walkers as they sing their way down to battle. I am still master of the Cayman clan, as we are all still. Those who dare stand in our way will die. It is Rafe's body, these lab workers, associates, converts. None of that matters. These are the new order of the old order. Long bones, blood to bone. Along the dense and sloping tumble of the mountain, countless shelters, pits, caves, trees, bowls, Hives, nests, and watering spots empty out of any creature propelled by blood, bone, and sinew running. On the net of common knowing, that is the timeless, reconfigured Longbone's mind, still sees what is, was, and will be. Through the eyes of Kohler, he has seen the map of actions taken by the scientist's hands. This is how today the Longbone's reach extends into the far places 
each new point on the map of the universal mind lets them see what the point sees, know all of that being's relationships and of those touched by them for years still has looked on as Rafe extended the reach of his counterfeit ambition into the far distant world. The Cayman clan has watched patiently as their servant built a labyrinthine skein of interest in the places of mighty reigns. This one has done well, but a single error has brought them to this anxious action. The running woman, the escaped one, she saw through things somehow. They killed her, but something of her is not. Still knows his freshened mind has reached out, used the skill of Cayman's spirit to craft the future. Most of their hand, Kohler has done well. Condensed histories of time flare in his mind. The armies of men struggling to gain control of territory. Clan warfare, yes, they are so like all the lower peoples, so easily bent to struggle. Bands of short walkers laboring in rooms like the secret one the alone man has in the north. A maze of distractions and subterfuge. Assassins moving to seal and maintain the circle of invisibility. They have so carefully crafted over the hands of the alone man. That is why the running woman had to be killed. And the others. The ones that escaped each time. But those few, the escaped ones, are here now. Their time is short. All will be well. The solution is a vision of savagery. Rafe still stops in his tracks, lift up on his toes, listening to make sure no one is following. Satisfied that nothing is there, he lopes off ahead of the others onto the oxidized pitch of night. His nerves tingle with anticipation. Wednesday, 22.37, GMT-5. Coordinator stands alone in the darkness, waiting for her eyes to adjust to the slightly crimson gloom of the small space. This is the first time she's used this pair of readers, and the image-enhancing retinal screens are causing a slight weep in her left eye, probably the drag of slight imbalance of a bigger receiver lead, and then there's the oddly hued yellow cast of the stationary object that is slightly unsettling. Other than that, they're as cornea-friendly as any pair of over-the-counter contact lenses would be. And she loves the way she can redirect files, change screens, shift programs simply by focusing her attention. The old order was a pain in the ass, but with always having to put something on, shift your focus to cue the system, all that. Coordinator murmurs to herself to set the default for the microphone screen print. A thorax sensing impulse read where allows you to talk with your mouth closed and direct the computer with near silence, too. Two years ago, when I tried this shit, it was like listening to someone talking through a sock in the next room, coordinator thinks. Couldn't make out a word in ten, but this new setup is trick. Seems like they can get me word perfect every time. Ovi, have you got me linked yet? The scratchy voice over the readware and uplink. Your retinal scan and voiceover are online. Proceed as you like. From here on, I'm guessing it'll be mostly plug to play. If you have any questions, you'll be there, right? I am at your service for the duration, Obi says. You are not alone. She turns to really take in the room. Jack North gave her directions so she knows that this is Rafe's office. Every flat surface is gorged with piles and reams of paper, waste baskets overflowing onto the floor. God, the guy is a complete pig, she thinks. 
Let's hope his machines are better organized than this or I'll never find shit. Fucking scientists. The security up until this point was laughable. One infrared zone guard, a light red pad, pressure detector, and a few badly rigged sound and motion backups. Gotta love these provincials. But she supposes it's only to be expected. After all, how many data thieves are you thinking are going to run onto you out here? She begins a systematic sweep of the room. There are several terminals, but you can see they're all linked to a single stack. Despite the pigsty effect, there is some order after all. She bends to attach a series of wires to the surface of the drive boxes. All the lines flow back to a six centimeter square sequencer clipped to her waist. It's meant to devise a security workaround for any code guardian where affixed to the physical plane of the computer. She takes a pocket transceiver connecting her retinal interface to the box as a means of assuring no connecting point will be forgotten in a moment of haste. Using your thoughts to control a machine-connected interface device is set up as a vulnerability. Any hasty disconnect, you could have real physical side effects. The idea makes her wince. An all-clear blinks in the lower right corner of her heads-up panel. Cool. She pulls up a chair in front of the nearest screen and lights up the system. Okay, let's go to it, she says wordlessly into the throat mic. She pops into the interface connector between house and the local system, and the house mainframe immediately begins bombarding the on-site box with ECM. 30 seconds later, she still hasn't got access. Ovi, what's up? Many key pairs in sequence, he says. More interesting than expected, but the ECM is cracking. Just a moment. Coordinator hears what sounds like a faint tapping over the connection. You're in, Ovi says. Where would you like to begin? Accounting, she says. System-wide accounting. If there's a weak spot here, anything that makes some off-the-books cash, this is where we'll find it. After all, the man's a science geek, not an accountant. The screens before her eyes flicker suddenly awash in unending data deluge. This could take some time. Ovi, she says with her mouth closed, could we get something else up on the screen right now? Like, I don't know, like... As I recall, your file indicates you have some enthusiasm for card games. Perhaps a little gin. The intrusion rolls on. Wednesday, 2300 hours, GMT minus five. The long bones are coming down. They snake ever lower on the mountain face, stepping over jagged rock hidden beneath downy coverlets of moss, sliding with the certainty of bats through the dense wall of jungle dark. They fall onto the footstep hills in the distance from the Matiwa Puchkau, house of the sacred lake, whose rarefied atmosphere and distance have for eons provided the safety of invisibility. The old ones, reincarnated in the form of today's seekers, are descending, going to the lowlands to touch what must be felt for things to remain as they have been since memory beyond words. It is time for this. That is why they step quickly, each footfall animated by an urgent sense of purpose. Each of them is armed. Although magic is power, it alone may not be enough to kill, and tonight's killing is their work. This work must be done quietly, swiftly, and with a free flow of blood. Once, long ago, what they are about to do would have been easy. They'd have fallen on their enemies in overwhelming numbers and annihilated them, but things have come undone. Today, there are not enough of them to bring unequivocal destruction to their enemies. The Amati is disappearing, and today the Uwa guard their young like never before. 
They have been awakened in the coming of the shade. Besides, no amount of amati can make a being immortal. Three hundred, four hundred years of life, yes, there is that, but each member of the clan comes to their day. Death by exhaustion, accident and murder are all death just the same, and the long bones are not immune to that dark hand. That is why there is the plan. Salvation, growth of the line, lies within the plan. And to keep the plan from unraveling, they must cull the intruder enemy. Somos criaturas de la selva, caimanes sangre a hueso. We are creatures of the jungle, caiman, blood to bone. This, they know, is the single truth of things. There is not much time, so few of us, and the machines are destroying this place enough. Slipping through the darkened forest, their single mind moves out onto the bottom ground where the night reeks of all that is not like them, and living things trail the ghosts of past lives like tales. All that moves here, all that belongs to this lower place, those that breathe and eat of it are afraid of what they do not, cannot know. They are right to fear the proximity of the long bones. This is as it used to be, all weak things, those that walk with the short tail, beings that cannot live with the rock snake of water, they should be afraid. Ours is the ordered mind, the single mind. Ours is a walk outside of time. These are the words that lie within the ululations working their way up from the throats of the longbone walkers as they sing their way down to battle. I am still master of the Cayman clan, as we are all still. Those who dare stand in our way will die. It is Rafe's body, these lab workers, associates, converts, none of that matters. These are the new order of the old order, long bones, blood to bone. Along the dense and sloping tumble of the mountain, countless shelters, pits, caves, trees, bowls, hives, nests, and watering spots empty out of any creature propelled by blood, bone, and sinew running. On the net of common knowing, that is the timeless, reconfigured Longbone's mind, still sees what is, was, and will be. Through the eyes of Kohler, he has seen the map of actions taken by the scientist's hands. This is how today the Longbone's reach extends into the far places. Each new point on the map of the universal mind lets them see what the point sees, know all of that being's relationships and of those touched by them. For years, still has looked on as Rafe extended the reach of his counterfeit ambition into the far distant world. The Cayman clan has watched patiently as their servant built a labyrinthine scheme of interest in the places of mighty reigns. This one has done well, but a single error has brought them to this anxious action. The running woman, the escaped one, she saw through things somehow. They killed her, but something of her is not. Still knows his freshened mind has reached out, used the skill of Cayman's spirit to craft the future. Most of their hand, Kohler has done well. Condensed histories of time flare in his mind, the armies of men struggling to gain control of territory, clan warfare. Yes, they are so like all the lower peoples, so easily bent to struggle. Bands of short walkers laboring in rooms like the secret one the alone man has in the north a maze of distractions and subterfuge, assassins moving to seal and maintain the circle of invisibility. 
they have so carefully crafted over the hands of the alone man. That is why the running woman had to be killed, and the others, the ones that escaped each time, but those few, the escaped ones, are here now. Their time is short. All will be well. The solution is a vision of savagery. Wraith, still, stops in his tracks, lift up on his toes, listening to make sure no one is following. Satisfied that nothing is there, he lopes off ahead of the others onto the oxidized pitch of night. His nerves tingle with anticipation. Wednesday, 23-12, GMT-5. The first touch is cold. Luz shifts on her sleeping mat. Perhaps it is the newness of this ground. But by the time she thinks it, she knows it's wrong. False, she sits up. There is no shift of awareness in her as she moves because she has never truly gone to sleep. Since the moment she lay down, she has been unable, in truth, unwilling to leave the present moment. This air cannot be cold. She knows that. There is a certain turbulence to the atmosphere. She raises her palms toward the sky, and her soul rises up, pouring out through the gaps in the adobe hut's thatched roof on an errand to find the source of the avalanche of frigid air cascading through the village. From a certain height, she is able to look down on the sleeping Pueblo. The scent is there, a hint of iron. The forest is awash with strands of light, like a rendering of a computer chip circuitry. The pathways of all the denizens of the jungle are rendered on the carbon glaze of night. Some paths sizzle with the intensity of their use, while others are pale and barely visible, unsigned by recent passages. Lines tremble and pulse as they transect the quadrant of space she is observing. There, something on the near hillside, a pathway whose foreground is so faint it is barely discernible, but is flamingly alight in the distance, a whiff of rancid meat. Sour breath, the visionary drops back into her rising body. They're coming. She runs into the next room and shakes the old man's shoulder. Elder, elder brother. Ramon rolls to a sitting position. His hands glow faintly in the dark. He has not slept either. I see it, he says. The scratch of his quill on paper voice is thin. We must warn. No time, Luz says, shaking her head. No time. She steps past his low cot, jumping down the mud sill of the hut, onto the clearing between the buildings. She encircles herself with a line drawn raggedly in the fine soil by an extended toe. Then she raises her hands overhead, turning, stretching up high onto her toes, lifting, raising, as if attempting to reach something on the lip of an impossibly remote shelf, and disappears. Ramon watches, fascinated by the spectacle of change. At the apex of Luz's reach, an enormous owl appears and lets loose an ear-shattering call. The huge bird swoons, once, dipping toward the ground before its powerful wings sweep down with a surge and lift it to carry it up, skimming over the rooftops, heading south. Wednesday, 23.15, GMT-5 The first awareness coordinator has that she's lost track of time and sound comes when the hand lands on her shoulder. Her impulse to react is instinctively swift and defensive. 
Any thief caught in the act would do the same. She bolts out of the chair, crouching down and away from the contact point and lashing out behind with a wicked kick whose force is meant to badly just joint an attacker's leg. Linked to the same series of violent motions is a centralized order of calm. She recovers her foot and bounces on her compressed legs, bringing a cruelly acute knee into play against the unwanted visitor's groin. But none of that happens. Instead, she finds herself as fixed to her chair as a butterfly on a taxonomist's lab. Every muscle bulges, every nerve squeals with determination as she wills herself to rise. What? Yes? Ovi's usually bland voice shows concern. Do you need something? Is something wrong? He can hear her outraged protest, can understand every nuance of anger and frustration. The software is indeed magnificently improved, but he can't do anything about Coordinator's situation. Hello, Coordinator? Is everything all right there? Answer's implacably flat voice streams out of the darkness behind her. Settle down there, tough guy. He doesn't have much to give to small talk right now. Containing coordinator struggles within the confines of his mesmic fence is really the first order of business. She fights hard. The instant her mind recognizes his tone, coordinator lets her body go flaccid. The hand on her shoulder stops her off-balance fall and raises her up and back into her chair with alarming ease. Okay, pal, she hisses at the gray face. What's the goddamn story? Coordinator, is there anything we can do for you? The voice drones in her ear. What are you doing here, Coordinator asks. It's a logical question. Any asshole can see that. You think this is some kind of party, a little after-hours sleepover situation? Jesus, you're just messing shit up. I don't suppose you're wearing all that slick gear so the entire Pueblo can hear you reading me off, Answer says. I was watching you work the laptop this afternoon, and I don't take you for a recreational pad type. Figured you might get into something interesting. He lifts his controlling hand from her shoulder. A sense of muscular determination flows back into coordinator's limbs and core. What was that? Her eyes reflect the stew of fear, anger that she feels along with respect. She can't see a weapon. The screen shows he's holding nothing. That, oh, a little personal defense thing Luz taught me. Nothing really, just a trick. Answer folds himself down cross-legged on the floor next to her taking a seat. Those red eyes look interesting. What do they do for you? Coordinator begins to pick up where she's left off. Curiosity about hacking from the god of no-tech? My, my. Coordinator points at the lenses. This interface is letting me break into Kohler's system from this terminal. It's got a fairly wicked insulated, but those people are a lot smarter than anything in this neck of the woods. So what have you got? Answer asks. Or what are you looking for? But before she can answer the question... Coordinator thinks of one of her own. How did you get in past the alarms? I disarmed them just to the point of not setting them off myself, but once I was in, I let them drop back in behind me. Just some alligator clips and 10-gauge wire loops, Answer says, cocking his head to one side. Routed the whole system out to another power source and leaked it to death. All their alarms were set to respond to sharp drops in amperage, so I just let it bleed out. That and a couple other little workaround steps over the battery backups and here we are, cozy as friends around a campfire. Okay, asshole, you don't have to shove it all the way in. I was just asking. Keep it small. That's my motto. 
I don't imagine you have to try too hard to accomplish that. An attention-getting pastel wash flashes over the screen on her eyes, demanding she refocus her mind on the work at hand. Appearance of phenomenon, recipients, lock one, multiple unknown billers found, listing of particulars to follow, then a stream of identities and documents, nonlinear bank routing for identified recipient listing, a stream of account numbers and mailing instructions, photo contacts, numbers, back check on identities provided, show call only, all derivative nature, form only substance lacking, false identities, all, linkage formula structure, username, original, Kohler, point of origin, same, all names, Kohler apparatus, additional data, fund circulation path subtracted design equals 17 corporate nonprofit entities, non-organic, non-human form identity, conversion accounts to capital structures, implied and explicit, see records advanced by inquiry path for more. Possible material pending link anyway. Access restricted at present will proceed at level depth for the data forthcoming end. Well, my heavens, Mr. Kohler, coordinator says under her breath, what have you been up to? Coordinator feels the exhale of relief that attends vindication. Seems the local director of Action Direct Amazon has been indulging in more than a little diversion of assets. Where's the money going? Answer asks as he nods his head. I knew this guy was empty, but what does it mean? Looks like he set up a network of corporations and subcorporations, as well as a couple of nonprofits to shuttle the money through. And it looks like the majority of them. This is a sec here while I. <laughs> no shit. She turns her unworldly luminescent gaze on answer. Looks like most of the juice is going somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Join us next week for Chapter 17 of Criminal Magic. If you are enjoying our stories and conversations, please leave a rating and review of the podcast so that others can find us as well. Thanks, and see you next week.